we're in a series, uh, a very, I think, important series that we started last Sunday. Robbie did a great job kicking off this good news series about the gospel of Jesus as found in the book of Mark in the New Testament. You know, we live in a world where we're kind of inundated by bad news, by sad news, by tragic news. So it's good for us to stop sometimes and realize that uh, we have a good news story that we're a part of, that we get to live out and we get to live with. So for the next several weeks, we're walking through the book of Mark, and today we get to chapter 2, and we're going to arrive at chapter 2 with a lot of stories that we could look at. Uh, one of them is a story of Jesus going to the home of Levi, the tax collector, and a group of sinners that he has dinner with. And this dinner with sinners causes uh, the religious leaders of that day for their heads to spin around, okay? Because for some reason they didn't like it. And this, of course, is the classic passage where Jesus tells them that he did not come to this earth for the healthy, but for the sick. This is also the chapter where the disciples are not fasting like the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting. And Jesus answers them and tells them, about the bridegroom. He talks to him and says, the guests of the bridegroom don't need to fast as long as the bridegroom is present with them. And he goes on to talk about putting old wine in new wineskins, an analogy that I'm pretty sure had uh, them completely baffled and confused. But at the end of the chapter, it really gets heated because the Pharisees accuse the disciples of Jesus of picking grain on the Sabbath, of working on the Sabbath. And this, of course, is the famous response where Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It did not sit well with the religious leaders. In fact, it is one of the things that began to really uh, get them hot under the collar for Jesus and to pursue him and eventually have him killed. It is a great chapter in the book of Mark, but we're actually going to look at none of those. We're going to start at the very beginning of the chapter. And one of the great stories, I think, in the Gospels. I have loved this story since the first time I heard it in Sunday school as a kid. It is a powerful story about good news that happens in the context of community and great friendship. It is a story about a guy who falls one day and could not get up if it were not for a little band of community of friends in his life. We're going to look at this story today and use it kind of as a backdrop to grasp the reality and really the necessity of being good news in a bad news world. We are called to be good news for people who need hope, who need healing, who need forgiveness, who need friendship. It involves a paralyzed man, a group of friends, and they bring him to Jesus. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 2. Beginning with verse 1, it says, Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and the news, I could say good news, of his arrival spread quickly through the town. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there wasn't room for one more person, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't get to Jesus through the crowd, so they dug through the clay roof above his head. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My son, your sins are forgiven. So let's unpack this story for a moment. Here's a paralytic. 
And we need to think and kind of imagine in this story what his life would be like. What would it mean to be a paralytic in the ancient world? His whole life, friends, if you can envision this, was lived on a mat. Three feet wide and probably about six feet long. Someone has to feed him, carry him, clothe him, move him to keep from being covered with bed sores, clean him when he soils himself. This guy will never know the sense of independence that we as Americans prize so fiercely. Nothing can be done for him, medically speaking. There are no surgeries, no rehab programs, no treatment centers. There's really no way for him to contribute to society, at least they think. Anyone in this man's condition now has to go through life in the ancient world as a beggar. He will be laid beside the road and be dependent on people out of generosity dropping coins beside him so he can live another day. Now because he is a real person, and we have to think about this, because he's real like you and I, he has dreams. I'm sure sometimes he dreams of having a healthy body. In his dreams, he probably walks and runs and he does good work and maybe he's married and plays with his kids. And then every time he wakes up and he looks at the ceiling of a room that he will never walk out of, he looks at a body that is holding him prison, he looks at a mat that comprises his world and he realizes, I'm never really going to be free. He has no money, no job, and no influence. And seemingly, he doesn't have much going for him except one thing. In his little world of three foot by six feet, sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? He has one thing going for him, one powerful piece of good news, and that is he is part of an amazing community of friends. In fact, this whole story kind of flows out of one very important decision that this paralytic man made years ago. Let me just kind of walk through these with you. First of all, he realized at some point in his life that he would never drift into deep friendship. And he said to himself, I'm going to choose between community and a life of isolation. Some of you are in this room today and you're isolated. The truth is, this is the hard truth, Nobody really knows you. Nobody is ever allowed inside your world. Some of you will remember a famous movie star if you're old enough to know this person. He died uh, several years ago. He was generally in westerns, and this guy kind of exemplified the rugged individualism which we admire in our society. His name was John Wayne. He was called the Duke. Anybody know who I'm talking about? If you're over 50, you will. Did you ever see a John Wayne movie, movies like True Grit, where he played a character who needed to be in therapy? <laughs> you know, John Wayne never needed therapy because it was just usually him and, to be frank, his horse. And he really didn't even need the horse that much. In fact, if the horse acted up or fell behind, he'd just put the horse down and get another one. That's kind of the way people go through life in our world. They really don't need people. They really don't need community. They really don't need friendship. If this friendship doesn't work out, they just kind of pull out the gun and they shoot the friendship and it's gone. And they get another one. They live in isolation, not because they don't interact with people, because many times they have a lot of acquaintances, but they don't have community. 
According to Jesus, we're called into a different kind of life. And this life is not about going to a church. It's not a call to go to church. I've known people, some of you have too, who've gone to church for years, maybe 20, 30 years, week after week, month after month, have sat in the same seat every single week. And they come and they chat about sports and the weather and about their job, but nobody really knows. Nobody really knows them. Nobody really understands their hopes and their aches and their pains and their dreams and their fears. And they go to their grave never being more than just familiar strangers with people around them. I know people who give up. I know people who say, you know, Jesus never said you had to go to church. Jesus never commanded that. And I would say to you, you're exactly right. What Jesus really called people to was to enter into a community life. To enter into the deeper relationships with other human beings. To know and be known. And this paralyzed guy did not have much going for him, but he had the wisdom, listen, and he had the knowledge, and he had the sense to choose a life of community over loneliness. It is going to change his life in the end. Now here's an interesting point. Even though this guy who is paralyzed chooses community, it doesn't necessarily mean that community is going to choose him. This is an extremely important part of the story because he realizes that obstacles will have to be overcome and you will have to overcome these obstacles to keep you from connecting in community let's talk about this guy for a second first of all there's no way that this friendship and this relationship with these other four guys happened by accident because of his physical condition the deck was stacked against this guy from the very beginning. If you think about it, even in our day, people who have physical challenges or maybe even mental challenges, often people, they will talk about how difficult it is uh, many times because normal people, okay, they face obstacles. And one of the obstacles they face is that sometimes they can't even look them in the eye. They can't even start a conversation. They can't even approach them and kind of meet them eye to eye, face to face. In the ancient world, friends, you can multiply this by a thousand. The Greeks regularly disposed of newborn infants with physical anomalies. In Rome, during the 5th century, there was literally a statute on the books that said, quickly kill a deformed child. In Israel, this man would have suffered from another stigma. Remember the story in John's Gospel, the New Testament story where the disciples see a man who was blind from birth? And they ask Jesus, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And of course, the answer was neither of them had sinned to cause the blindness. But here is an example. This guy would have had a stigma possibly attached to him. And in the face of this stigma, this little band of guys, his brothers, refused to let any obstacle anything stopped them from being his friend social stigma inconvenience financial pressure a high cost of time and energy they choose they choose to become friends psychologist alan mcginnis notes that the number one rule for entering into deep friendship is so deceptive yet simple he says you must assign top priority to building a relationship with another human being. <laughs> Let me say that again. You must assign 
top priority to forming a relationship with another human being. Ironically, he says, in our day, we tend to devote massive amounts of time to various things, but we neglect the most valuable possession that we have, time to experience for which we were created, that thing for which we were created called community. Here's where we differ from the time of Jesus. We try to create first century community on a, first, a 21st century timetable. I would say that the biggest thing that keeps us today from connectedness is simply the pace of our lives. We've all said it. I said it this week. We've got to get together soon. Let's do lunch soon. Let's do lunch when things settle down. And you know when things settle down? When they lower you down. <laughs> the requirement for true intimacy is chunks of unhurried time. You can't do community in a hurry, friendship in a hurry, marriage in a hurry, parenting in a hurry, none of that. You can't listen in a hurry, mourn in a hurry, rejoice in a hurry. And the number one reason that people are not in community, this is the number one reason, is they've never made it a priority just to build some friendships. Here's what you'll find. If you make it a high priority, you will discover that you cannot carry someone's mat in a hurry. And this is maybe the most key observation of this story. You have to realize that everyone has a mat. In fact, when you came in this morning, I hope you received a mat. Did everybody get a mat? This is your mat today. Doesn't it look pretty? <laughs> this is your mat. It's not three feet by six feet. It's a little smaller, but it represents your mat. And in the seat back in front of you, there's a Sharpie. You may have to share it with somebody. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this mat out, and I want you to look at it for just a moment. The truth about us is everybody in this room has a mat. And the mat in your hand stands as a picture of human brokenness, insufficiency, and challenge. This mat is what is too heavy or too hard for me to carry on my own. If you think about it, every Alcoholics Anonymous meeting is a fellowship of the mat. But so are healthy families and churches. Physically, right now, don't look at your mat. I want you to physically look at someone around you, just one or two people. Just look at them and say good morning. Say something to them so they don't feel weird, okay? Maybe you want to wink at them at this point. That person that you're looking at, look at them. Just look at them. They look respectable, don't they? I mean, a couple of them look a little squirrely, but most of them... They look pretty respectable. That person that you're looking at looks like they have their act together, right? I mean, I'm looking at all of you, and you look like you have your act together. But I'm going to tell you the truth about the person next to you that nobody else is going to tell you today. The true story about the person that you just looked at is that person has said things and done things that would blow you right out of that seat if you knew what they were. Some of you would be shocked if you had the full truth about the person you just looked at. But here's the deal. Not only that, but those folks carry their mat and their brokenness every day of their lives. 
Everybody has a mat, and I do mean everybody. Maybe your mat is the temper that you can't control. You lash out at the people you most want to love. Words spew out of your mouth like lava from a volcano. Words that you will later regret. Your children even sometimes look at you with frightened eyes. Or maybe your mat is fear this morning. You hear these stories of courage and boldness. And in your mind, you have a hundred scenarios play out in which you would take daring risk and you would tell off all the bullies in your life with calm, cool composure. But the truth is that you still get sweaty palms when you have to go to your mother's house. You live in fear. Maybe your uh, mat is the inability to trust people or the need to be in control all the time or the inability to speak the language of the heart. Maybe your mat involves a terrible secret of something awful in your past that you feel guilty about. Maybe it's a crushing sense of failure or inadequacy or plainness or loneliness. I have no clue what it is, but I do know that everybody has one. What I'd like you to do is from now until the end of this message, I just want you to think as the Spirit brings it to your mind. I want you to think about what your mat might be. What is it that you have to carry around with you? Now listen, don't put your name on these maps because we're going to use them later. But I do want you, as the Spirit prompts you, to write down what you think your mat might be this morning. Be honest with yourself. Is it one of the things I named? Is it maybe financial struggle? Is it maybe you have a sense of laziness in your life right now? A sense of maybe no purpose and you're just kind of wondering? What is the mat that you're carrying right now in your life? Just take a moment during this message and write it down. And that brings me to another really, really important point. At some point in your life, you have to let others see and carry your mat. You have to let somebody see and carry your mat. Only when that happens, only when you do that, when you give and receive help with each other, is healing really possible. Think about this paralyzed guy. He had to wrestle with a sense of dependence. I mean, let's be honest. I'm sure at some point in his life he got a little jealous over the independence that his friends had. They were together for probably a period of time. Everyone could leave his house and just walk home. Sometimes he had to wish in the secret places of his heart, if he was human, that at least maybe for one day he could trade places with them. He must have struggled how sometimes they looked at him with his neediness. He isn't the only one. Sometimes people in this world spend their whole lives doing mat management. They act like they don't have a mat and they're too healthy and strong. People around them assume that they could just walk anywhere they want as far as they want to go. Some people get really good at seeing other people's mats. <laughs> like, you ever seen somebody with a spiritual gift of mat identification? <laughs> they can see everybody's mat, but they can't see their own. See, this is what mat management is all about. It's kind of like makeup in our world today. The truth is now there are hundreds of kinds of makeup. I don't know if you know how big an industry this is now. You start using makeup, and after a while, you just kind of rely on it. In fact, now there's a phrase that people use. They don't even say, I'm going to put on my makeup. They say, I'm going to put on my face. 
Now that's a crazy thought. Because if you can put on your face, what can you do? You can take it off. And what's underneath when you take off your face? See, we can all do that. We can all get good at hiding. But you will never experience what this guy experienced in Mark chapter 2. If you choose not to reveal yourself, if you choose to hide, you will be choosing, I promise you, an inner kind of loneliness for the rest of your life. You can have tons of people in your life be involved in every activity and group on this planet, but you need to understand if you don't let somebody, at least somebody, carry and see your mat, you will live with that kind of loneliness. Here's why. Someone a lot smarter than me said this many years ago. There is a deep connection between being fully known and fully loved. The way it works is like this. As long as you're in a relationship with somebody and they don't really know who you are. In other words, there's hidden kind of blemishes and there's blotches that you've covered up. You have things about yourself that you don't want anybody to know. There's always a piece of your mind back here in your brain that will work like this. Whenever that person comes to you and hugs you and loves you and says, boy, you're a part of our group and we're so glad you're here and we're happy that we have you and we love you and we accept you just like you are, there will be another part of your mind as they're hugging you and loving on you saying to themselves, yes, but if you knew the whole truth about me, if you knew what I did yesterday or if you knew what I thought yesterday, if you knew the real me, then you really wouldn't love me. And you really wouldn't accept me. And you really wouldn't want to include me in your group. You can never, ever experience full acceptance or wholehearted love until you are fully, wholeheartedly known. So my question is, is there anybody who sees and carries your mat? Who do you ask to pray for you? John Vanier writes this. He says, there is no ideal community Community is made of people with all their richness, but also with their weakness and their poverty. It's made of people who accept and forgive each other, who are vulnerable with each other. Humility and trust are more at the foundation of community than perfection. Isn't that great? He said, if you want deeper relationships, you can't always be the strong one. <laughs> this is exactly what happens in this story. Because of one man's vulnerability, because he's so visible and he's so real about it, everybody in the group becomes honest about their mats. Now watch what happens. One day they get this good news that Jesus is coming to their town. Four guys find out about it, and naturally they want to hear this famous rabbi. And one of them says, yeah, but we can't go by ourselves we got to take our buddy. This would really encourage him. And maybe what they're really saying about this guy is true. Maybe this guy really could heal our friend. Wouldn't that be crazy if he healed our friend? Wouldn't that be awesome if he healed our friend? Especially since we carry him everywhere. Now this is going to be hard logistically, but they're not thinking about that. They're thinking of their friends. So they say to him, they say, hey, listen, we're going to go see Jesus. We're going to pick you up at 8 o'clock. Now, when he's told that he's going to be picked up at 8 o'clock, he doesn't really have any choice because when they tell him that, they're really going to pick him up at 8 o'clock. 
And they get to the home where Jesus is teaching. Listen, and it is standing room only. In fact, the scriptures say there was no room left, not even outside the door. He's so close, yet so far. I don't know if they counted on this at all. Now they're shut out. So they kind of just watch for a while, and then one of them, probably the guy who went to uh, Harvard grad school, says, okay, guys, let's put our heads together. Let's figure this out. How can we get our buddy to Jesus? Let's have a little brainstorming session. And remember, no idea is a bad idea. So one of them, probably the young guy with tattoos and piercings, they usually are the out-of-box thinkers, you know. He says, listen, what if we made a hole in the roof and we just kind of lower our buddy down with ropes? And the guy from Harvard says, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that's stupid. But you know what? Nobody had a better one. So they take the hole in the roof idea and they start action. It's unorthodox, but they're desperate. So they decide that nothing will get in their way. So strong is their trust in Jesus. Listen, and so great is their love for their friend. So they get some rope and they plan to lower the mat and they head upstairs. Now in those days, it was kind of common in houses to have kind of an outside little staircase leading to the roof, which was kind of like a little patio. And the friends go up and they start remodeling this guy's house. Now here's the scene, Jesus is teaching because he's a tremendous, excellent teacher, I'm sure people are paying close attention, but suddenly the distraction level begins to rise. A strange noise. Sounds like it's even coming from upstairs. Dirt and dust and bits of reed begin to descend from the ceiling like people's eyes and it's getting in their hair and first it's just a few flakes and then there's like, like hell is going, you know, breaking loose, like chunks of, of large pieces of reed and and dust and dirt. Eventually, all the conversation just kind of ceases and even Jesus himself stops teaching and looking. And there's this big hole now in the ceiling. Four pairs of hands are rooting around, making the hole bigger and bigger. The guy who owns the house is freaking out. You're hosting Jesus, now you have a skylight that you didn't even ask for. These men are devoted to their friends, so they decide to do a little roofing, and nothing is going to get in their way. Listen, this is the moment of their lives. This is the moment of their friendship, and this is why. The key point of this story, community gets built by roof crashers. Community gets built by people who are willing to break through any barrier. Friends are really people who have just made a major roof-crashing commitment to other friends. See, in our society, Lewis Mead said it best. He said, we have confused friends with friendly people. This is a great point. Some of you probably received this same kind of phone call, but this past week I got a call from a guy, and I answered the phone, and immediately he said my name, Phil. How are you doing today? He asked me how my day was going. He spoke in warm and caring tones. He was concerned for me, and the reason he was calling me was that my car may not have had the extended warranty that I needed to cover major expenses. Anybody ever get this call? But when I told him that I didn't want to spend any money with him and his firm, I got the clear sense that our relationship was suddenly over. 
Listen, he was a friendly person. He really was, but he wasn't my friend. And now we live in this world, this weird world of networking and contacts and Facebook and likes and quid pro quos. But listen, I mark it down. When the relationship isn't strategic anymore and when the sales dry up, I promise you most of the time the relationship is over. It's not necessarily a bad thing, friends, but it's not a friendship. A friend is committed to you in a way that a paid service provider is not. I love uh, what Yuri Rothenbrenner, he's a psychologist, he says, this is really kind of his definition of a family, but it really applies to community as well. He says a community, a family is a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. And the key word there is irrational. In great communities, people carry mats and crash through roofs, and they never ask the question, what's in it for me? In fact, this is the question for this morning. How far will you go to do a little roof crashing? Now, let me be clear. It doesn't have to involve destruction of property. Really, it, it's two things. It's noticing and then doing. When you see somebody is discouraged, you write them a note. You make a phone call. When you know someone really needs to talk, you really take the time to listen, even though you're super busy. When you see a gift that you know would bring delight to someone that you know, you buy it for them, listen, for no reason at all. Now, this is the irony of the mat. Our mats are usually what we are least proud of and we're most likely to hide. We are so convinced that if we were to tell people about our mats, that they would run away from us and hide. But in reality, it is precisely our mats that form the primary connecting point for a deeper friendship. Henry Stack Sullivan was a pioneer in what is called interpersonal psychology, and he used to tell his students in class, he would say, it takes people to make people sick, and it takes people to make people well. Now, theologically, I understand that's not strictly true. Every one of us has our own quotient of sin and brokenness that we are quite responsible uh, apart from anyone else. I get that. But for better or for worse, we are shaped more by people than any other thing in this world. Now we arrive at this climactic moment in the story, and we'll close here. Imagine that you're this guy who has lived on this three-by-six mat his entire life. You're about to go through the roof. It is singularly, singularly the, the biggest risk you will ever take in your life. You're wondering, can I even trust these guys to let me down here? I mean, when you're on the ground, it's one thing to drop you. It's another thing to drop you from the second story. You wonder if you can trust the crowd to be civil. I mean, they did arrive early and got good seats. In a way, this is kind of like butting in line in front of Jesus. You wonder in your mind, can I even trust Jesus? What if it turns out that he's not willing to help or can't help or doesn't want to heal me? What if he gets a little upset about being interrupted? Being a public speaker, I kind of know what that's like. I've always thought Jesus was really smart coming to earth before cell phones were invented. You lie on that mat thinking to yourself about all these dangers and all these obstacles, and you have just one decision to make. If you go through that roof, you could get dropped on your head. 
You can get ridiculed, jeered at, and rejected. On the other hand, if you don't go through that roof, listen, you will never, ever be healed. And this guy puts the thumb up, and he nods his head, and he rolls the dice, and he becomes a roof crasher too. And in that moment, nothing will ever be the same for those five guys. Jesus looks up and he sees those guys staring down at him. And their only thought is, how can we get this guy to Jesus? And the text says the most amazing line, when Jesus saw their faith. If you look at healing stories in the scriptures, usually the stories speak of Jesus seeing the faith of, one, of the one who was asking to be healed either for themselves or their child. Here, it's the faith, not primarily of the guy who's sick, but of the friends who are bringing him. I want you to know something. Do you have any idea what the faith of one person can do for a friend? And they dig a hole and they lower this guy. There's no record that they said anything because it's not what they heard or did or said that moved Jesus. It is what he saw, and that was their faith. And Jesus looks down at this twisted, motionless body on a mat. And he doesn't just see a broken guy. He sees like broken humanity. And he says the words that this guy needs to hear more than anything else. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. The guy who had been judged probably by people and scorned and ridiculed by people. Jesus knew that the thing he needed more than anything else was to be forgiven. People often will say things like, what kind of sins can a paralytic commit? <laughs> I mean, he can't go anywhere or really do anything. But G Jesus understood this. Jesus understood that the deadliest sins are the ones right here. Resentment and bitterness and judgmentalism and lovelessness and greed. See, one of the key points of this story, and Mark mentions this, is that there are other people present in the room, teachers of the law, people who were thought of and thought of themselves as these spiritual giants. And they all got there on time, apparently, and they got really good seats, but it doesn't mention one time about them bringing anybody to Jesus. And the question that may be asked in this chapter is, who do you think really was greater in God's eyes? The experts of the law are the people who had somebody to bring to Jesus. And Jesus says the words that are going to change five lives forever. He says, he turned to the paralyzed man and he said, stand up, take your mat, and go on home because you are healed. And those four guys said, yes. I mean, he's paralyzed, so his muscles would probably be atrophied. I mean, Jesus not only cures paralysis, but he kind of throws in a little muscle tone. He stands up, takes up his mat, folds it up, puts it under his arm. Let's go home. His world has enlarged from three feet by six feet to as far as his feet can carry him. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, he is now the healthiest dude in the room. And imagine when he becomes an old man 
All of his life group now, they're like walking on canes and walkers and rascals and scooters. Maybe his legs are still running strong. I don't know. But I like to think the story ends like this. One by one, that guy's friends begin to get old and pass away. And every time he looks at that mat, because I have to think maybe he just kept the mat kind of somewhere over in the corner. He remembers that little community that crashed through that roof for him. And he remembers the place where they used to carry him time after time. And he remembers the moments when they would throw him up in the air and they would catch him right before he hit the ground. And he remembers the time that they defended him and they stood up for him and they sacrificed for him. And then he remembers that day when Jesus came and they crashed through a roof together. And he has to look down at his legs and he has to smile and remember that the greatest gift was not his new legs. It was those four guys, his friends. The good news is from Mark's gospel is that we can have that kind of irrational commitment to the well-being of other people. It's called a community. It's called a friend. It's called a church. It's called a family. And it takes one thing, and that is be a roof crasher. Be a roof crasher.